CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. It's Monday, May 24th, the start of a brand new week here on Political Rewind. I am Bill Nygut, and as always, we are going to have a lot to talk about today, and I am certain in the week ahead. Uh, Let's get right to the panel, because we do have so much to talk about. It's Monday, which means that uh, Jim Galloway, former political insider columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, now enjoying a life of leisure up in uh, essentially Northwest Cobb County, but not really Galloway. You continue to be as engaged in politics as ever before. Well, you try to keep your hand in, you know, you know, but, but uh, and, and it's getting easier. I can go out to lunch with people now. Yeah, isn't that wonderful for the vaccinated? I, a lot of people this weekend were living life like normally. We certainly were in our family, which is a very exciting uh, thing. Jim, thank you <clears throat> for being here. And We have three professors with us on the show today, all of whom, except for Fred Smith, who is still grading final exams. Fred Smith, constitutional law professor at Emory University. Uh, Fred, uh, you're still under the gun to get your final grades in, right? Yes, Wednesday. (laughs) And then I can uh, can return to to writing and uh, and being on this show Mm guilt-free. Uh, good luck. Uh, Amy Steigerwald, you're done, right? You've just put all the grades away. Your Georgia State University Political Science Department. You are, of course, the associate department head, so that means your summer is going to be filled with work. Yes, we're actually in the midst of uh, we've, we've got a search committee meeting today, other stuff there, so it, it doesn't end. Also, there's the, you know, all of the time now to hopefully actually get some of my research done in writing and, and stuff off my desk that co-authors would really like back. Uh, terrific. And we're joined by uh, Professor Alan Abramowitz, Professor of Political Science at Emory University. And Alan, I saved you for last for a reason. Right before the show went on the air, you pointed out that today is Bob Dylan's 80th birthday, <laughs> born on May 24th, 1941. Alan, in 1974, he released his song Forever Young. So at that point, he was like 30, 40 years old. I wonder if Dylan is still singing that song today, Alan. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> Actually, uh, the version of that song that I'm familiar with is uh, the one that was done by Joan Baez. Who oh, covered, of course. She, she covered who, quite a few Dylan songs, of course. Uh, we could spend an hour talking about the way in which mm-hmm. Bob Dylan repeatedly broke Joan Baez's heart when they were both young and living in New York <laughs> City. Uh, but we won't. Forever young. And here's what he said in that song. May God bless and keep you always. May your wishes all come true. May you always do for others and let others do for you. May you build a ladder to the stars and cl- climb on every rung. May you stay forever young. Bob Dylan, happy 80th birthday. All right, Mm -hmm. let's get down to the business of politics here at Political Rewind today. Jim Galloway, it it, it almost feels a little bit uh, like deja vu all over again, as Yogi Berra would have said. We are about to embark on the fourth recount of ballots in the Fulton County presidential election, 145,000 
absentee ballots are going to be examined. Tell us what that's all about. Uh, well, it's, uh, you know, in, in, when I was a, a young Boy Scout, we would always go, that we would take the newcomers on a snipe hunt. I don't know if you will, if if you've ever done it. Was a it was a search in the dark for a mythical bird. This is a snipe hunt. Uh, we've uh, we've got uh, we've got a, a a group that is is saying they know there's fraud in Fulton County in the Fulton County absentee uh, ballot system. They just don't know what where it is, and they're 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 bound and determined to search it out. They won't get a look at the original ballots. The judge was at least smart enough to do that, uh, nor will they be examining the polling machines. Uh, so, so th- those are those are two pitfalls that we saw happen in in the Arizona recount. Uh, but it's you know it, it it's getting a little bit old, and and there's nothing to be changed here. Uh, and that that's and uh, but but I I think the danger here is that all of this 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 raising of doubt, especially around Fulton County, which is a highly democratic county, could uh, could be a precursor to what we're going to see in 2022. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, Fred Smith, because you're the the uh, professor of constitutional law on the show, uh, I I don't understand this was. The order to, uh, for, for this recount was um, issued by a Henry County judge where the case was brought by plaintiffs who really say they just want to be careful about these absentee ballots. And, and he's a superior court judge. And talk to us just for a moment about a judge in another county issuing an order that's going to impact the county that he is not, uh, is not in his immediate jurisdiction. Sure. So, I mean, so he's a state court judge, um, and the uh, the plaintiffs, the lead plaintiffs, are from Fulton County. It seems to predominantly be about Fulton County. Um, there's a related organization um, when it comes to the plaintiffs. Uh, I'm not sure exactly where they are uh, incorporated. That might explain the venue question. Um, another possibility is that there may, and I'm, I'm entirely speculating, there might be some provision in state law that um, that when it comes to uh, to elections in one county that, that gives superior court judges in other counties some uh, some degree of authority, uh, but I, I but that said, um, usually uh, when it comes to other questions about a county's elections, it's the local county uh, superior court judge who handles those. So um, that that part of the posture uh, was a bit uh, surprising to me as well, and I haven't seen anything in the reporting just yet to um, that that explains that um, and. Uh, because it's a state court order, I wasn't able to uh, easily access it to read it, uh, which I wanted to do, uh, and I'm anxious to do. Um, but uh, it looks like Amy might have some thoughts. Well, yeah, Amy, I wonder if this is judge shopping to some extent. I don't know who this judge is, and I and I, that may be complete speculation, but why don't you weigh in, and then Alan would like to hear from you. Well, the only thing on this one is, so the lawsuit itself was actually filed in the Fulton County Superior Court, and so the only thought that that leads me to see, and I haven't been able to find the answer, is whether or not uh, there was then a request to perhaps have a superior court judge sort of sit in um, by designation on this, because it technically is being handled by the Fulton County Superior Court, so even though the judge is from Henry County, it actually is being handled by the Fulton County Superior Court, and so that suggests that this might be an instance of sort of sitting by designation 
And I don't know if that's because judges in Fulton County weren't available, if it was because they didn't want there to be any suggestion that uh, a Fulton County judge might be right, more inclined to not listen to a complaint brought about Fulton County or something like that. So it could be a couple of those things, but it is actually being handled by Fulton, the Fulton County Superior Court, technically. All right. So I, I know that's minutiae. So, Alan, why don't you give us a larger political perspective on just sure. what's going on here? J- Jim made the point that at least in this case, the judge did not do what's happening in Arizona, where the voting machines, the apparatus was literally right. turned over to these independent contractors who are right. obviously Trump supporting Republicans. Right. Uh, so here, at least the, the machinery is going to remain secure. Nevertheless, what are the political implications here? Well, this, this is um, one example uh, this, of something that we're seeing around the country, uh, Arizona, Georgia, but also in, in a number of other uh, Republican, mainly Republican-controlled states where we're seeing efforts now, here we are a month after the election was decided, um, to go back and relitigate the 2020 presidential election. And... Uh, it's clearly just a continuation of the effort by uh, allies of, of the former president to uh, revisit his uh, faceless election fraud claims uh, and, and to trying desperately to find some evidence that in Arizona, the uh, Secretary of State, uh, who is a Democrat, has now uh, said that um, she's going to uh, request that the state purchase entirely new voting equipment um, for uh, Maricopa County because the uh, equipment has now been compromised by by these by these people who are conducting this this sort of bogus uh, investigation. Um, so it's, it's very troubling. It's very concerning for precisely the reasons that you mentioned, which is that. Uh, if this is happening now, imagine what we might see uh, after after the 2022 midterm elections or the 2024 presidential election. Um, we're likely to have, we're, you know, we know we're going to have a, a very contentious and likely very competitive election here in Georgia for governor and for other statewide offices as well as for the legislature. And um, you know, this is just raising the specter of of, of further claims of fraud. Uh, and, and of further litigation and further questions about the legitimacy uh, of the election. And, uh, you know, that's you, well, very I'm concerning. sorry, Ellen. No, it's I just, apologize. It's very, I didn't mean to interrupt. It's, very, it's just very concerning. Jim, I noted that uh, there were very few political people who I saw, at least, uh, respond to this order. Kelly Leffler jumped in pretty quickly. She gave a quote to the Atlanta Journal-Constitution saying, uh, you know, great, this is what we need. People have to have confidence on our elections, in our elections. Uh, of course, it was Republicans who have undermined the confidence in elections, unfortunately. Right, right. Uh, and, and, and one thing that's not clear is who's paying for this effort. And, you know, I, I mean, uh, of course, Ms. Leffler has, 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 has got plenty of money uh, and—, and I, it's possible that she is she is uh, uh, backing the financing on this one because uh, uh, the taxpayers are, are, are surely not. If if I could just ask ask Fred here, okay, this is a this is a a a, 
a decision by a a judge on a just on on the on the first line of of I guess of the fight is is this something that can or is likely to be appealed uh, by the by the county can it be appealed? Fred, did you mute your phone? In terms of whether it's I did in terms of whether or not uh, it is uh, it, it is something that can be appealed. Um, whether it's something that's likely to be appealed is a, is kind of more of a, a strategic question. Um, but the nature of it is so generally um, injunctions to do something or or uh, denials of injunctions um, are immediately appealable because you can't appeal it later. <laughs> like once it's done, it's done, right? And, and this uh, is the type of order that certainly has that quality to it. Um, now, in terms of whether or not as a strategic matter, it's something that, um, that the, the litigants will fight, um, I'm less sure about. Uh, Amy, I want to pick up on something that Alan talked about that I think is important here, and that's this effort that is now going on in a number of states uh, to go right back to the 2020 election and question its legitimacy. There are other places, Michigan, New Hampshire, a number of states, and Georgia cannot be far behind in some effort, I would think, to cast out on the entire statewide election beyond Fulton County. Here's one... Here's a couple sentences from the Washington Post article on this broad effort now. The increasingly vocal protests, this is today's post, the increasingly vocal protests seven months after Trump lost the White House show how deeply the former president has undermined confidence in the nation's elections, an attack he began early in the 2020 campaign as States and local officials have expanded mail voting in response to the coronavirus. Even as national Republican leaders say they want to move on from the last election, the widespread echo of Trump lies that the election was stolen show how his supporters are keeping the narrative alive, Amy. Yes. I mean, part of the issue is, right, is that the rhetoric about this started well before the election itself, right? There were claims that even before... Uh, people finished registering the vote before we even knew who all the candidates were going to be, that there were going to be problems, that there were these possibilities of fraud, that we should look out for it being rigged. And what we're now watching, and I think is maybe perhaps the most concerning, is that we keep seeing comments from people that right, they know that there's fraud. We just have to go and find it. It's it's the mythical snipe hunt, right, where we're looking for the Loch Ness Monster. We know the Loch Ness Monster is there. And even if we do everything we can to find it, not finding it isn't, in fact, proof because we can't prove a negative, right? We can't prove that fraud didn't occur. In Georgia, we did three different counts of the ballots. It was live streamed. If you really wanted to, you could watch the ballots being counted live in all 159 counties. There are still concerns, though, that there was something that must have been untoward, right? Some little incident that messed up. And that's, I think, where the issue really comes in, because it's incredibly difficult to disprove that, right, something Mm -hmm. didn't occur. And what that's also been leading to is not simply sort of these recounts, but it's the laws coming It's laws that are being introduced, um, for example, in Arizona that would suggest uh, that it might be possible to overturn, right, in the next election, the results of what's been certified by a simple majority vote of the legislature, right? It is the law in Georgia, right? One of the more concerning parts about it that hasn't gotten a lot of attention, I think, because it sort of sounds so in the weeds, that the state board of elections can take over 
uh, the county's ability uh, to take over the running in counties, right? That, for example, the Secretary of State is no longer the chair of the election board and there isn't one, and it can now simply be chosen by the governor. Um, all of these things really sort of set us up for this ability to interfere much more easily with the work mm -hmm. of dedicated professional experts who are just simply trying to get their job done. Right, and, and, and I think also we have to see this effort to go back and relitigate the 2020 election as yet another uh, indication of the hold that the former president continues to have uh, over the Republican Party here in Georgia and across the country. Uh, and, and we've seen that in, in, in recent days, for example, uh, in the vote uh, to establish a commission to investigate the, the January 6th insurrection and, and in some of the uh, comments that we heard from Republican members of Congress uh, in indicating that, you know, they uh, are trying to downplay the seriousness of what, what happened on January 6th, including one, one Republican member of, of, our, of our state's uh, House delegation who uh, compared the insurrection to, to uh, a, a normal tourist visit uh, to, to the Capitol. Um, so th there's, there's that. Um, there, there's the e efforts to change election laws uh, around the country in response to these bogus claims of election fraud to, to supposedly try to build, uh, rebuild confidence, which has been torn down by the very people who are now trying to rebuild it. Uh, so, uh, you know, it, this is one piece of, of this, of this larger picture. Uh, and it's kind of remarkable considering that, that, that Trump uh, has has lost his platform. Uh, he's lo lost his Twitter platform. He's off of Facebook. He's having great difficulty, you know, finding some way of getting his messaging out um, to his supporters. Uh, he's not had much success in, in doing that. He's become almost sort of invisible in that regard. And yet we see that he maintains this, uh, this hold on the, on the loyalty of uh, of, of most Republican elected officials around the country and, and Republican voters. All right. Um, it's an interesting story. By the way, uh, before we move on to another subject, we should say that we don't know when this recount is going to start, exactly how it's going to unfold. That will be left to another judge, apparently, to uh, decide. But it will certainly, it appears, unless, as you pointed out, Jim, an appeal should overturn the, the state court's uh, decision. On this, it will. We will see another recount in Fulton County. Uh, Jim, there's a story that you have been deeply uh, active in covering for a long, long time, and it's unfolding today in a in an interesting way out at Stone Mountain. You have been uh, over the years covering and and actually offering some suggestions about how Stone Mountain might uh, rethink how it tells the story of the park, the Confederacy, the lost cause, and the like. And today, uh, the Stone Mountain Authority Board of Directors will meet to hear from the CEO, Bill Stevens, about proposals that have been talked over about how to reframe the entire conversation. Tell us a little bit about that. All right. Uh, this was originally proposed uh, uh, last month uh, in, in April. And and what Bill Stevens, he's the, the kind of the CEO of the the of of the uh, Stone Mountain Memorial Association, is hoping to do, 
is 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 to, if you will, contain the 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 Confederate message mm-hmm. emanating from from Stone Mountain. It's it's a little bit hard to do when you're when you're de- dealing with a with a uh, a uh, a carving that's three acres large, mm-hmm. you know. But uh, but uh, but this is to me. I think this is a very important inflection point. Uh, and it's uh, you've got a collision of, of of two things happening. Number one, you do have a you do have a a gubernatorial race that's that's coming up uh, next year in in twenty twenty two, likely between Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. You also have the 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 a a, a, a potential economic implosion of Stone Mountain Park itself. Uh, one of the the things that was that was largely unnoticed last year during 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 the the the, the presidential contest was was that the Hershen Family Entertainment uh, Company, the the company that actually manages the private company that manages Stone Mountain, they gave up. Uh, they they gave uh, their the, the required two year notice that they they want out of Stone Mountain. Uh, in large part because of uh, because of the the association with the Confederacy and the white supremacy that has been ongoing, uh, uh, so so there's that the Stone Mountain itself has dropped. Part of it is COVID related, but they had fifty seven million dollars in revenue generated last uh, in in twenty nineteen. They had twenty two million generated last year. Uh, a lot. They have Marriott. The, the the Marriott, the company which now runs the the only hotel on the property, uh, has also served notice that it is depart, departing. So you've got this you've got this political decision being made while it's becoming more and more obvious that the Confederacy is is not a viable commercial concern, you know, if you will. Um, so, uh, Fred, I was looking at the Stone Mountain. Board uh, composition this morning, and it's interesting. It's certainly it's appointed by by a Republican governor and, uh, and and a previous governor, and so you've got quite a few. I mean, you've got Republicans. You've got an awful lot of a, a concentration of people who are from over in kind of like uh, uh, it, Walton County and and that area. But Governor Kemp did appoint Reverend Abraham Mosley Fred to be the new chairman. The first time we've ever had an African American chair of the board. And just one more point, and then I want to hear from all of you, starting with you, Fred. Among the changes being considered are adding a new museum exhibit about the park's full history, renaming Confederate Hall Heritage Hall, relocating the Confederate flags that have flown at the base of the mountain to a distant location, and changing the logo of the association to remove the image of the carving on the uh, mountain itself. Fred? Yes, uh, as you know, yes, Reverend Mosley from Athens. I'm from Athens. <laughs> I know Reverend Mosley. He's a pillar of the community. Um, he's very independent-minded. Uh, I, did, I would characterize him as center-right um, and uh, has supported uh, both Democrats and uh, and Republicans. Um, yeah, so this is uh, – I, I, I favor, to the extent possible, addition over subtraction when, it, you know, when, it's, uh, when it's viable. Um, and, you know, to me, uh, I have long wanted um, two stories to be told more prominently when it comes to what's present at Stone Mountain. And one is the story of how that uh, carving got there. And it seems like that's one of the places that they're going to start. Um, and the other is the story of the people who are on that carving, the story of the Articles of Secession, what they actually said, 
what they actually stood for, what they were fighting for. Um, and if that's done well, um, then that could be a really powerful moment. Um, I'll go back to Stone Mountain when uh, it's a place of, uh, of memory. Um, it's a place um, of, uh, where uh, there's some degree of solemn, solemnness um, that reflects the gravity um, of what, is, what has been carved there. Um, and the circumstances in which, in 1916, the idea for such a carving uh, emerged, um, uh, that it was a uh, part of a reign of, uh, of terror. Um, and, uh, and, th- and there's a way to do that without covering the monument, without, but, but, but that means then that the telling of the truth needs to be as, uh, as significant, as bold, as grand, um, as uh, the, the, the celebration that's currently there um, of the Confederacy. Um, and that's going to take a lot of resources. That's going to take a lot of thought uh, to do it really well. Um, but, um, but I think that it can be done. Uh, those are great points, Fred. And, and uh, I would certainly second everything that you just said there. I, I, my understanding, though, is that the board is constrained right now in terms of what they're allowed to do by state law. Um, so there are state laws that say monuments, you know, can't, can't be removed, uh, have to be protected. Uh, they may even be limited in what they can do as far as displaying uh, of, of the flags and things like that. So that, that would have to be changed, I, I think, for one thing. Um, but, you know, that, that seems to be a reasonable idea you know, way to go, go forward. I, I, I think that would be great if they, if they can do it. I'm not sure that the board is going to agree to all of that. Um, you know, frankly, I'm, I'm a little more skeptical and pessimistic about, uh, about that. My, my preferred solution would, would be to let, let the carving itself deteriorate, let it go. You know, my understanding is if it's not maintained, that it will gradually disappear. It will take, you know, decades but at least it would be a send a strong signal if the decision was made that we're just not going to maintain this thing anymore. We're not going to, you know, focus on it. Yes, certainly tell the tell the, the real story behind it. Uh, absolutely. I think the other issue this brings up is sort of a, another topic that's being debated in which I think wildly misunderstood, but, and that is the push to outlaw, for example, the teaching of critical race theory Mm -hmm. or critical legal theory. Um, I think most of the people, I I mean, I say this obviously as an academic who studies these things, uh, don't really understand what either of those are, but it really comes, I think it's a perfect place of where we sort of see kind of dual issues happening that are really kind of bringing this into juxtaposition. It is difficult to discuss Stone Mountain without discussing the history of slavery, the Civil War, succession, white supremacy, the Ku Klux Klan, right? That's obviously where it very famously came back to power and was restarted in kind of its second iteration, and it is still used as a gathering point. Um, And to be able to discuss that history accurately, we have to talk about all of those things, but yet that is also where we're seeing, for example, uh, pushes being proposed to outlaw the teaching of these types of uh, topics, to be able to say it, and it it really sort of sets up this, um, I think, real struggle 
uh, both political, historical, and, and how we understand all of these things, because this is an excellent instance where we cannot discuss what the carvings on Stone Mountain reflect without discussing all of these topics, right? And I think one of the most important parts, right, and it similarly we saw it in the debate over uh, the flag when we were having that back in the early 2000s, is that, again, we have to talk also about the context of when they were adopted, right? The, the flag that we changed was adopted in 1956, and it was adopted as a reaction to Brown versus Board of Education. And it's a similar type of thing that's going up there. Yeah, Jim, I want to quickly. give you the last word, but I got to get to a break. So yeah, go absolutely. ahead, I'll, I'll, find yeah, a point. Yeah, I'll 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 be brief here. Uh, this you can uh, to 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 Amy's point, you can see this tightrope that Governor Brian Kemp is is walking. Number one, an initiative like this that's going on in 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 in, in at Stone Mountain does not happen unless a gov- governor greenlights. Uh, the effort. So we know that he's 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 at least given a a a, a tacit signal that that the uh, the the Stone Mountain Board can proceed. On the other hand, just a couple days ago, uh, he he issued a he he issued a, a, he sent a letter to the State Board of Education, uh, uh, demanding that this critical race theory uh, not be taught in any Georgia schools. That's I mean it's 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 a that's it's a, it's a very contrary message. Uh, but I, uh, but and you can see where he's where he's trying to 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 balance what could be a a pretty stiff reaction from from uh, a a a rural white Republican base in Georgia. Okay, I've, I'm really late for our first break. I want to make two quick points. First, uh, we spent a lot of time on the show the other day talking about this whole concept of. Uh, the demonization of critical race theory, and we'll certainly be talking a lot about it in the weeks and months ahead because it's going to be a big election issue. That's one of the reasons it's out there. Um, uh, number two, uh, Tyler Estev, uh, the AJC reporter, wrote a really, really good piece on the history behind uh, what's happened to Stone Mountain Park, the carving and all the rest in this morning's AJC. Sam, I really think we should post a link to that on our website uh, because it's pretty startling. And it is a much more recent development, this celebration of the lost cause than I ever thought until I read Tyler's piece. All right, we're listening, you're listening to Political Rewind. We'll be right back with more. Jim Galloway, Emory University of Political Science Professor Alan Abramowitz, uh, Fred Smith, Professor of Constitutional Law at Emory University, and Amy Steigerwald, Professor of Political Science at Georgia State. But I, you know, uh, I talk about Fred's work and dealing with uh, constitutional law, but Amy, I, I should have on this show especially mentioned that a great deal of your work is in looking at the federal, has been looking at federal judiciary and other judicial matters. So I, I want to make sure I get that in. Uh, in uh, describing your credentials. And with that in mind, let me start with you on both a political and a legal matter. Uh, We know last week the United States Supreme Court has said, yes, they will take up an important uh, case that could, in fact, have a significant impact, perhaps not overturn it completely, but certainly continue cutting away at uh, the uh, uh, rights given to women to choose an abortion should they want to do that, that have been, that have been uh, 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 slowly eroding in federal uh, uh, courts recently. 
Linda Greenhouse wrote a really interesting piece about this, I thought, in the New York Times the other day. And from a political point of view, she said something really fascinating. She said, in the long run, this case may take away a big platform that Republicans have had in legislative elections, congressional elections, because they have used abortion and outlawing abortion as a fundamental part of how they run for office. Yes. So Kristen Luker actually back in the 1980s wrote a book called Abortion and the Politics of Motherhood. And one of the things that it really sort of lays out is that there was no political pro-life movement prior to uh, Roe v. Wade. That all came sort of in response to it and acted as kind of this galvanizing force to create sort of these social movements and a, a political movement. And in many ways, it is one of those where playing defense is generally a little bit harder, whereas playing um, sort of going in. And so there's been a lot of push. And so many times the sort of pro-choice communities, ironically, right, those groups started up later. They started up in reaction to uh, the pro-life movement because there was a feeling of, look, we got Roe v. Wade. All is well. And so what I think we're seeing now is a bit of a shift going the other way where it does there, there is now a much more likely possibility where right? we don't know entirely what's going to happen with the court. They, they have limited right the question that they're going to ask to uh, whether all pre-viability prohibitions on elective abortions are unconstitutional. Um, but it's certainly right. The, the answer to that, uh, it's possible that they could say uh, that no, right, that all prohibitions are not uh, prohibitively unconstitutional. And so that leads to this uh, potential a similar type of reaction that we saw after Roe v. Wade with the pro-life movement, seeing that on the pro-choice movement, because for many people, I think it has not had the galvanizing effort, a similar galvanizing effect because it was still good law. And the courts have routinely struck down. I mean, we saw it, obviously, with HB 481, Georgia's so-called heartbeat bill. It was immediately struck down. Uh, so was, obviously, this Mississippi law. So was the equivalent Alabama law. So was the equivalent Indiana law, right? The courts have routinely said, no, it's unconstitutional. Casey and Roe are very clear on this. And so in that sense, we sure there were groups that were stopping it and sort of politically active, but it didn't, I think, resonate with voters in the same way that it has on the pro-life side, where there's a very clear goal that they're trying to get to. Fred, the case is Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. Amy said it's a Mississippi case. Mississippi legislature essentially outlawed abortion after 15 weeks. Changing, which has been a continual, a continuing a spectrum of reducing, of dealing with viability and, and abortion rights, Fred. Yeah, so the current state of the law, right, is that um, there's kind of really two interests. There's the state interest in uh, protecting uh, what the court has called potential life. Um, and then there's the constitutional interest um, when it comes to the right of privacy. The government can't force people to, uh, to, to be sterilized. The government can't force, pe force people to have abortions. The government can't force people to, uh, to carry, uh, uh, to, to, to have a pregnancy and, uh, and give birth. Um, and, and those are all a kind of a part of the same right of privacy and right of bodily integrity. Um, and so you have the state, a very important state interest, and you have an ex a very important um, constitutional uh, interest in people's right to, as the court put it in the 1920s, the right to be let alone. 
Um, and uh, the way that the court has balanced that um, is that uh, pre-viability, um, their, the state cannot put undue uh, burdens on uh, a person's uh, right to choose. And after that period, um, the, the state can put uh, barriers. It can even ban it after viability, so long as there's exceptions for the life and the health of the mother. So that's the constitutional framework from Roe and, and, uh, and from Planned Parenthood versus Casey uh, in 1992. Uh, and so, uh, you know, there were these, Georgia, of course, passed the six-week bill. Um, and there didn't seem to be perhaps a lot of appetite for that. Um, and, uh, and so, but it looks like when it comes to the 15th uh, week mark, there might be some more interest at the, uh, at the Supreme uh, Court. It's interesting to note that the that Planned Parenthood versus Casey, which adopted the framework that I just described in an opinion by Justice O'Connor, Justice Souter, and Justice Kennedy, that particular opinion was also decided in an election year in 1992. And the position of the plaintiff, the position of the, the folks who were representing um, uh, individuals who had an interest uh, in their own bodily uh, integrity um, that was that if the court upheld the laws from Pennsylvania that were at issue there, then they might as well overturn Roe. And they and they affirmatively said that during our oral argument. If you, if you let's just overturn Roe, um, which was kind of a shocking position. But that the reason why they made that strategic choice, it's understood, um, is precisely. Um, this political reality that's being alluded to today, um, to kind of throwing this to the political sphere, um, would uh, would actually not go the way some people think. Well, Fred, I'm glad you put it. Let's take us back to the political context of this, because Alan uh, and then Jim, uh, we are going to see this decision uh, most likely. It'll come down during in the middle of the 2022 uh, mm-hmm. election. They'll, they'll, and and um, Alan, you sent us all in an interesting study. Uh, from uh, the American National Election Studies Organization about um, how abortion has shaped the vote uh, of Democrats and Republicans over decades, and you're looking at how that might influence what happens next year. Right. Uh, Essentially what we've seen over the years since Roe v. Wade uh, is, and especially uh, over the last, I'd say, 20 to 25 years, is that... uh, the issue of abortion has become increasingly uh, uh, divided, has increasingly divided uh, uh, people along party lines. Uh, so in, initially, when Roe v. Wade was decided, and for some time after that, it really wasn't a partisan issue. Uh, that didn't really happen until, it didn't become a partisan issue initially until after 1980, when the Republican Party was for the first time uh, put it in its platform, uh, overturning Roe v. Wade, a call for that. Um, but by now, um, this has become one of the most divisive partisan issues around, uh, and, and Democrats and Republicans are very, 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 very divided uh, over this issue. And we've gotten to the point now where there are, if you look at um, the Congress, for example, there are, there are almost no pro-life Democrats, almost no pro-choice Republicans left. Um, there, there, there used to be a, a lot of those folks uh, around. Uh, so it really does divide along party lines uh, and divides the electorate uh, very much along party lines, especially among those who actually care uh, about this issue. And the question is, if this decision comes down uh, a year from now or so, and if we see that it's effectively either overturning or gutting uh, a Roe v. Wade, what impact will this have uh, on the 2022 midterm elections? It's largely going to reinforce the divisions that already exist 
within the electorate. It's not going to move a lot of voters across party lines because people are already locked in kind of to their to their divergent uh, camps uh, on mm-hmm. this along party lines. The question is, who will be more motivated? Uh, will that will this motivate one side more than the other? And and I have to think that it's threatening to take away what's been considered a fundamental right uh, is going to be a stronger motivation uh, for those on the pro-choice side than, than it would be at that point on the pro-life side. This has been a shift that's been happening anyway over time, uh, and, and I think that it would be likely to kind of reinforce that shift where we would be seeing uh, a great deal of mobilization and energy on the pro-choice side uh, to try to get people out to vote to, uh, who who would oppose that that decision? So, uh, Jim, I, I know Amy wants to jump in, but let me throw something out at you, Jim. Uh, Alan points out that th- there was a time when uh, this wasn't a divisive partisan issue. You and I both go back to the days when uh, Speaker of the House Thomas B. Murphy uh, went out of his way to def- avoid letting abortion legislation come up for votes because he recognized. That, you know, he's a conservative Democrat, so, you know, he recognized that it could wreak havoc uh, on, on, on those, both on the pro-side and anti-side of this question. So he fought against it. He did not. And his daughter always told him, don't even take it up, Dad. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and look, look, uh, even even now, you, will, you, you we have we have witnessed uh, House Speaker David Ralston, a Republican, uh, try to limit uh, the 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 uh, kind of the reach of these of these laws and even uh, and and Governor Kemp as well uh, to, to to both Alan's point and Amy's point you know the political energy is in the chase of the objective it is not in the achievement of the objective so so you've uh, so so I I, I truly I, tru- I I agree with Alan I think you know once if if Republicans get their way, and if this goes uh, to 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 seriously undermine Roe v. Roe v. Wade, uh, then you're going to have Republicans saying mission accomplished, possibly sitting down as as Democrats did after Roe v. Wade was was initially uh, ordered. And I think uh, what we have seen is, especially if you see if you've watched this, the Georgia State Legislature, you have seen you have seen uh, women uh, white women college educated. In, in suburban uh, 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 areas, flee the Republican Party. Uh, race has been one issue. Abortion is another. You had Lucy McBath yeah. in the sixth uh, campaign on the issue of, of 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 protecting a right to abortion. That's that was that happened in, in twenty sixteen. It's never happened before. Um, Amy, I want to give you the last word, and then I got to get to a break pretty quickly. Two very quick points. Um, I think one is that we shouldn't also undersell, I guess, the the one thing that I'll maybe add to what Fred was saying about sort of where the constitutional debate is, is actually the state interest of protecting the health and life of the mother, right? That that was sort of set up as sort of this other side of it because studies uh, continually show that, especially in the earlier stages, um, abortion is actually safer than than childbirth. And so it's as you get into later and that comes into it. But I think the second part is that there is a disconnect between where uh, elected officials stand on these issues as opposed to voters. Voters are not anywhere near as sort of anti-abortion as those elected members are. And I think that's the other risk that they really run, especially as we go into the 2022 elections. 
Uh, we got to get to the break. As we do, though, uh, you know, Galloway pointed out that David Ralston and, and even Governor Kemp uh, were trying to hold the line at some point on abortion issue. But of course, in the long run, just to be clear, they gave in. Uh, conservative Republicans held sway. The impact of those voters uh, really forced the governor and the speaker's hands. And so in the long run, the governor signed the bill. David Ralston presided over a house that voted for it. This is Political Rewind. We'll be right back. Jim Galloway, I really have tried not to give Marjorie Taylor Greene's behavior statements too much oxygen on this show. Every now and then, though, I really think you've got to say, here's a woman who represents the 14th District of Georgia, and this is what she stands for. Uh, the other day, on in an interview on Real America's Voice, uh, she said, uh, in talking about the fact that Speaker of the House Pelosi continues to insist that House members wear masks on the House floor, uh, Green said this, this woman is mentally ill. You know, we can look back in a time in history where people were told to wear a gold star, and they were definitely treated like second-class citizens, so much so that they were put in trains and taken to gas chambers in Nazi Germany, and this is exactly the type of abuse that Nancy Pelosi is talking about. Mr. Galloway? Uh yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it, the, the, look, there's, there's no, there's. She can't dance around this one. This is she, she, she used that word exactly, which is, which is, which is, I, I think, just damning. It is. These are the remarks of a, a of, of an ahistorical politician, uh, who doesn't know her history, who is, who is, who is very willing to, to, to say whatever she wa- needs to, to kind of. Uh, uh, keep that uh, uh, keep her keep her uh, uh, kind of bona fides as a as a, a Trump uh, Trump substitute. It well, I, I will tell you what I found more more uh, disturbing was that uh, the the radio host David Brody. He's he's uh, uh, a very 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 big in, in Christian journalism uh, circles. That he, he let that pass. That he let that remark pass. Yeah. He- he did. Uh, by the way, okay. So, Alan. Uh, by the way, uh, the only refinement of Jim's statement I would make is that the word "exactly." Uh, frankly, if she just said "sort of like," it would have been just as offensive. <laughs> right. Uh, very, very offensive. Um, but then again, um, that's nothing new coming from Marjorie Taylor Greene. Um, you know, she's been putting out these. I mean, I don't know if this is that much worse than some of the other things she said and done previously. Um, and again, so far as I have seen that we haven't really seen much reaction at all from the Republican leadership, from her Republican colleagues in the House. They're willing to let, let this go by. Um, I, I think that um, she thinks that these sorts of statements, she, she believes they will play well with her base. Um, that uh, attacking the Democratic leadership in this way and comparing the actions of the House Speaker to the actions of Nazis in Germany in World War II uh, is something that will appeal to her, her supporters. Um, so I think it'll be interesting to see now going forward after all of the controversy surrounding Marjorie Taylor Greene um, if there's a serious primary challenge to her. Uh, once the district yeah. lines have been redrawn, we'll see what, what they do to her district. 
Um, will she get a serious primary challenge? There's, a, there's no way a Democrat's going to win that district or any district in that area. So we'll have to see if uh, if, the, if a, of a more reasonable, you know, conservative decides to take her on. Okay, so Amy and then Fred, as we uh, get toward the end of the show, quick thing for for you, Amy. For um, Mar- Marjorie Taylor Greene continues to raise enormous sums of money around the things she says mm-hmm. and does, and and the attention grabbing. Uh, the effort to grab attention seems pretty clear. The Washington Post has another interesting story today. It says lawmakers worry the toxic atmosphere on Capitol Hill will follow them home, raising safety oh, yeah. concerns. What they're talking about, Amy, is the fact that a, uh, that that Marjorie Taylor Greene chased uh, mm-hmm. Alexandria Ocasio Cortez down the hall in the Capitol building, yelling at her, claiming she was an Antifa supporter, and that's for and and so. AOC's response is, I'm concerned about my safety and what followers are going to say. But something like that is clearly just an attention-grabbing stunt. It is. The issue is, um, and I've seen a couple of people start to raise this, that if you suggest that Nancy Pelosi's actions are equivalent to Hitler, then it raises the question of, so then what is an acceptable response to stop something like that? We went to war. Right. In order to stop Hitler. Right. Engage it. Right. If, in fact, you see it as that terrible, then it does suggest that a proper response to it is violent action. Right. Is to take any means necessary to stop the right genocide of the Holocaust from happening again. And it raises real questions of what will happen when people go back. We've seen it. Right. We've seen there be attacks against members of Congress. And it's a real concern. Fred, I want to give you a chance to weigh in before we have to close today's show. Sure. Right. Well, it, it minimizes uh, horror and genocide. Um, it's it, Sometimes these sorts of comparisons, that's part of what they're doing. Um, it's minimizing um, the, the horror by comparing it to something that's much less. Um, and, uh, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll leave it at that. I know where it's very, very empty. Uh, I wish we could talk for another hour. Fred Smith... <laughs> Uh, Amy Steigerwald, Ellen Abramowitz, Jim Galloway, thank you for a wonderful conversation. Tomorrow is the first anniversary of the murder of George Floyd. Uh, We're going to talk about that extensively. What's changed in the years since? What hasn't? Our panel will weigh in on that and a lot more on tomorrow's show. Uh, In the meantime, we are completely out of time for uh, today. I'm Bill Nygut. I'll see you again tomorrow. But in the meantime, please take care. Stay healthy. Uh, I guess you don't have to wear a mask if you're fully vaccinated, but I still hope you take care of yourselves and you're careful. And tell your friends who haven't been vaccinated, do it now so we can all live completely normal lives again. Thanks, everybody, for being with us. See you tomorrow.